At the exits, there are some cards and chocolates for you. Please take one of each. We have a Dove egg and a Hershey's hug. And the hug is heaven's ultimate gift, a savior. And my bride put that together. Amen. Thank you, Andy, and welcome. Uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I'm always reminded Greek, and her response was Christos Anesti, and the response to that is Elephos Anesti, that is, Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. And it's a great way to wake up on the Lord's Day, this day. We'll serve communion after the children do their presentation. If you are in Christ, that is, you have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to commune. Commune with Christ and his church today. We'll do a self-serve, if you will, with both elements, starting with this side. I'll instruct you again when it's time. Come up here and receive both elements. Then return to your seat and then wait. Because we'll take this together as the scriptures uh, discuss. And uh, if your heart isn't prepared to receive communion, you can do it. You can do it in the course between now and then. Just simply confess, repent, trust Christ, and commune with Christ. This is a special Lord's Day. We'll talk about this a bit. But one of the things that reminds me, particularly with these beautiful children, is last Lord's Day in history, the one that preceded the Resurrection Sunday, was a day of great praise. Hosanna was sung out by children. Hosanna just simply means, Lord, save us, save us now. And they sung it out with the great simplicity and truthfulness of their heart. And may we, like children, certainly hear the praises that they give. And in their innocence and joy, come together and praise and worship Christ today. It is fitting that the those that oppose Christ said something about the children. They couldn't stand that these children were being led to the truth. And Christ said it was prophesied by the prophets that the children, infants and babes, would sing out praises to our Lord. I think it's fitting for these children to sing out praises for us. Let us pray and then we'll have the children begin our worship of risen Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for who you are and all that you have done. You have created this world, sustained this world, and kept it even to this day. It is only by your grace that we have breath May we use this breath to praise your holy name. I pray during this time in all of these elements, whether it's the children from the sincerity of their hearts singing out praises to you, that we would truly be led into worship of Christ today. I pray for anyone, anyone that truly is not confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, may you, by the power of your Spirit, Utilize the testimony to Christ today to cause new life, awaken 
death, grant them life, eyes to see, a heart to sense and feel the very truth of who you are. May Christ be exalted today, and may our affections for Christ be increased. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
courageous. And his statement in Acts chapter 4 is, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you as well. Peter's testimony. He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He has become the chief cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And is that which we will commemorate this morning as we commune with Christ to recognize there is salvation in no other than Christ is risen and interceding even now. I go ahead and invite this side to stand and come forward and receive both elements. Return back to your seat and we will have them together. This side on the far right to come forward now.
of your worship folder, Matthew chapter 26, and it records the event in which Christ changed the elements of the Passover, which generally look forward to a day of God's deliverance. To say that these elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine, they actually represent the substance of what Christ has done. He called his disciples, and since then, disciples after that to receive this bread and wine in remembrance of Christ. And so what should we remember about Christ? Certainly with the bread, we remember the life of Christ, absolute perfection, merited for those that would trust in Christ. We stand before God not clothed in our righteousness because they are but filthy rags, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who stands perfect and has granted us that righteousness. And so we will receive, as the Lord says in the text here, take, eat, this is my body. Let us receive his body. The second element, of course, is the cup or the fruit of the vine. And he says this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. It is one thing to have the perfection of Christ's righteousness by which we'll stand, but what demerit that you might have because of your actual sin. Well, all of that sin is put on Christ, on his body, on the tree. There is true forgiveness. Forgiveness as far as the east is for the west, that there would be no condemnation to those that trust in Jesus Christ. He says here in the text, drink all of it, drink of it, all of you. Let us receive this in remembrance of Christ. When they went out, they went out with a a song and a hymn, but we will close here with a prayer of great thanksgiving and blessing and look forward to the time in which he says, I, Christ says, I will not drink of this again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This is called together for us to think on these things. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for the bread and the wine, both which reminds us of this glorious truth about Christ, to grant to us eternal life, true righteousness before you, not based on the things that we do, which we always fall short, but on the perfection achieved by Jesus Christ. And then the purification of our sin, washed away by the blood of Christ, Oh, we thank you, oh, Father, even this day for sending the Son. And we look forward to this great promise that we will commune together with Christ and all of his beloved church in eternity, enjoying the fruit of your bounty. I pray that this truth and blessing would touch our hearts even this day and cause us to be more focused on your gracious gift. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Good morning. Now it's our turn to sing. So grab your hymn books and stand and turn to number 270. And we'll sing Christ the Lord is risen today. 270.
cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free sing O oh, sing of my redeemer with his blood he purchased me on the cross he sealed my pardon paid the debt and made me free i will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save in his boundless love and mercy he the ransom freely gave sing o oh, sing of my redeemer with his blood he purchased me on the cross he sealed my pardon paid the debt and made me free i will praise my dear redeemer his triumphant power i'll tell how the victory he giveth over sin and death and hell. Sing, O oh, sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt and made me free. I will sing of my Redeemer and his heavenly love for me. From death to life hath brought me, Son of God, with him to be. Sing, O oh, sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me.
morning, church. What a beautiful day to praise the Savior, amen? We get to do this every Sunday and not just once a year like a lot of people. So praise the Lord, every, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for us. This morning we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 together. In your pew Bible, if you don't have your Bible this morning, it's going to be page 961. Again, that's page 961 in your pew Bible, if you don't have your Bible. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Lengthy chapter, but we'll get through it together. Uh, I can't not say something before this, so I just want to say a couple things while everybody's flipping to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I guess there's two things that, that most churches in the world fail to realize in theology. And uh, the first thing is the nature and character of our God. And the second is the nature and character of our sin. God, the judge of all the earth, is righteous. The judge of all the earth is perfect in the administration of his justice. And since God is holy, perfect, and righteous, not only will he punish sin, he must punish sin. Sin is cosmic rebellion against God or treason, if you will. One sin is all it takes to send you to hell forever. God doesn't grade on a curve. Your good deeds don't outweigh your bad deeds. There's not enough good that you can do to make up for your bad. What does this all mean? If God is perfect, holy, righteous, and perfect in the administration of his justice, it means you can't escape the judgment of God in your humanity. No amount of money given to charity, no amount of any good work could reconcile you to God. Our only hope in the day of judgment is Jesus Christ and his propitiation and atonement for our sins. We see the evidence of the fall of man all around us. The world continually falls apart. It does not get better. I think of Jesus in the garden. Matthew 26, let me just quickly read this, and the cup that he describes, Matthew 26, 36 says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray, and asking, or excuse me, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is the cup? What cup is it talking about in Matthew chapter 26? The cup represents judgment in the full divine wrath of a holy and just God against all of our sins. So the next day, Christ would drink down the full furious wrath of a holy God for the sins of his bride, the church, the elect, his people. You cannot hold your own cup of judgment. You cannot stand before God alone. Christ is our only advocate. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 together. 
about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied to death. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Amen. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subject, subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour. I protest, brothers, by my cry to you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. 
I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come from life, come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare, a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For a star differs from star and glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let us pray for Father, we thank you for this beautiful day to come and worship you. Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb, our only hope. Lord, we're totally depraved in our sin apart from Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you help us to be servants, Lord, in all aspects of our lives and be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Let our children see Christ in us. Let us preach and teach Christ to our children. Everywhere we go, Lord, may we be a beacon of light in the dark, dark world that we live. Lord, we desire to exalt your name today. Lord, we ask that you break any hard hearts that don't know you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. 
We ask, Lord, that you give us strength and opportunity this week, especially today if we're around families, to proclaim the gospel. Yes. Lord, let, let the unsaved see a different people. Yes. Let us not live as for this world, but for the world to come. Lord, we ask that today that you bless the offering. Help us to guide and use it wisely. And we ask again, Lord, for strength and opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Help iron sharpen iron. Help us to sharpen our minds and our knowledge of you. Help us, Lord, to kill sin daily in our lives. Yes. Help us to righteously hate sin yes. in our lives, to weed it out. We want to become more like Christ. It's in the name of Christ we ask and pray all these things.
Thanks, all children, Caroline and Ethan, Blake for leading us, and church as well for lifting up your voices to worship Christ. I invite you now, let's worship him in his word, John chapter 20. If you've been with us, we've been going through the gospel of John verse by verse. We're going to take a pause in chapter 16 where we, and return to that next week. This week we're going to jump ahead to chapter 20 because it deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning I want you to focus primarily on the idea of the empty tomb. Put yourself back in time. This is a narrative that is given. Think of the people and the place and the time in which this occurred. It is a historical narrative, something that actually occurred, and it has a profound application. But to understand the application, we need to look at what actually happened. And that's what I want to do. Examine, if you will, this empty tomb, and we're going to look through the eyes of Mary, John, and Peter. I want us to see what they saw as is recorded in this text and then ask you this morning to evaluate your own perception. What do you see in this empty tomb is written and recorded here in our text? As Rodney read already from 1 Corinthians 15, I hope you got the idea here. It, as Paul was challenging this church at Corinth, who had some sort of secular idea, cultural idea that, well, dead people don't raise. If that's the case, then Christ isn't raised, is what he said in verse 17. And if God can't raise dead people, Christ isn't raised, and if Christ isn't raised, then you're still in your sin. Everyone who has fallen asleep, that is the euphemism for describe those that are in Christ who have died, they're said to have fallen asleep because they will wake up at the resurrection and be given life. But he would say here in this 1 Corinthians 15, well, if they're in Christ, if Christ has perished and they have perished, and if we have hope only in this life, you're to be pitied. You're to be pitied. But Christ is indeed has risen. Now, some people look at this text about this importance of the resurrection that Paul places here in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, well, then that's a priority of all things. And I don't think that's what he's trying to say is that the resurrection is the most important. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's essential. It's absolutely important. If Christ didn't rise bodily from the grave, you have no hope. You're, you're gone. You're out. John, you turn these off. I'm getting some feedback in these mics, I think. Or somewhere I am. We're going to adjust the sound system somehow. You got it? Okay. All right, uh, back where I was, you're to be pitied if 
You only have hope in this life, and if Christ hasn't been raised bodily, it is absolutely essential, and it is an essential aspect of Christianity. But it is like other aspects of Christianity, this cannot be minimized, nor can anything else in relationship to Christ. If Jesus Christ didn't ascend on high, he wouldn't be in the heavenly places on his throne, interceding for his beloved. If he didn't vicariously take your sin on his body on the tree, your sins wouldn't be atoned for. If he didn't live a perfect sinless life, he wouldn't have fulfilled all righteous requirements that is required for you to stand before God. If he wasn't born of a virgin, he would have had a sin nature from Adam, but he didn't. If he didn't take on human flesh and walk among us, he he wouldn't have accomplished all of this. And if God from the very beginning hadn't designed it to occur perfectly in the way it worked out, you, you would be still in your sin. All elements of this are essential. So I don't think Paul is trying to prioritize that, but certainly to address an issue, and that is to say, listen... The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential. Our text deals with that very subject on the day that it occurred. In John 20, we'll look at the first 10 verses and examine what these witnesses saw on that very day. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid them. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant by the power of your Holy Spirit enable us to see this empty tomb today. Call to life those that are dead. Do a miraculous work of regenerating their heart to where they would truly confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Our focus this morning will just be on these eyewitnesses, as I mentioned, 
and we'll consider what they saw in our text. And I hope you noticed that as I went along reading it. You really have three different Greek words that are used here for the simple English word saw. These references here, you have Mary who saw a stone in verse 1, and then John is mentioned there as well. This is this other disciple. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Could have been just because of his humility. I think it even more so is because he can't imagine that Jesus would love a wretch like him. We think very highly of these folks, but John didn't think so highly of himself. And he, like Peter, was quite a rough fella, but he had been smoothed out by the cross of Christ. In any case, he is enamored with Christ. He loves Christ. He can't imagine Christ loves him, but he came and he saw as well, verse 5. That's a Greek word, blepo, there for saw. It just means, it's a general sense, means to be aware. You have verses 6 and 7 where Peter then comes in and, and he sees beyond the stone that Mary saw and the cloth that John saw, Peter in verse 6 and 7 notices linen cloth and a little bit more carefully and notices a face cloth folded and set aside. Thereo is the word here. It's a different word for saw. It means to observe closely. We get the term theorized from this. And then finally in verse 8 you have John then coming back in and he sees again Adam. It's a different Greek word. It's a word that emphasizes understanding and notice here in the text this saw is verse 8. It's paired with belief. Now just because different words are used for a single word that we translate in English doesn't necessarily mean much. People can write that way, stylistically we do. You might have used a thesaurus before to find a more creative way to write so that you didn't have to repeat the same exact word. Words have ranges of meaning, and so just because we find these words, they're not necessarily technically there to provide some sort of distinction. And how we determine that is usage. Usage ultimately determines meaning. And I argue as you read through this text and find what they actually saw and how they describe it, that yes, this usage here is providing a little additional information characterizing what they saw. And the first picture with both Mary and then John, in this first step, is a picture of a general view, if you will. The next one with Peter is a very careful view, and finally you have John again, and it's paired with belief. All three of these are important aspects of seeing the empty tomb and believing. The first one, I would say, as the reformers characterize it as it is in Latin, notitia, it is the content of the faith. There's this general idea of what's going on. There's an empty tomb. There's some grave clothes. There is a substance to this truth. 
The next step is what the reformers call a census, and the idea there is a conviction of the faith. That is, you have examined it, and it is true. It is specifically true. And then finally, you have the confidence in where John goes in and is paired with belief. He does express faith. That is, it is true for him. And by way of application, I ask you to see this empty tomb this morning. Let's look first through this general idea, the content of faith, as Mary and John views it in verse 1. It is the first day of the week, note that. And then Mary Magdalene comes early, and she sees this stone that is rolled away. The first day of the week here is the Sunday, what we call Sunday. They didn't name days. They used um, numbers, if you will. The seventh day is the Sabbath day. It was a day that commemorated creation week in which on the seventh day God rested. Under the Mosaic Covenant, that seventh day was then also instituted as a ceremonial day of rest, which looked forward, forward to a perfect day of rest, which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're not under this law and this compulsion because our rest is in Jesus Christ who fulfilled all the law and provides the perfect rest in him. The gospel writers here emphasize the fact that Jesus rose on the first day, what we call Sunday. His appearances over the next 40 days will all be on the first day of the week. It is a recognition of the significance of this particular day, the resurrection, in which change the ceremonial practices of this early church that was all Jewish, moving their primary day of worship from what we call Saturday or Sabbath to a new day, Sunday, ultimately renamed the Lord's Day. In Acts chapter 20, for example, it describes the early church gathering together. In verse 7 of Acts 20, I'll read a few texts for you. On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, that is to commune with Christ, Paul talked to them, and he preached to them till midnight. So if some of you are getting hungry around noon, just be thankful I'm not Paul. But in any case... Of course, he could actually raise the dead, and I can't, so maybe I should stop soon. But in any case, in the church of Corinth, in this next chapter, chapter 16, that follows the one we read in chapter 15, it talks about a collection for the saints, that is, taking offerings, taking gifts, as Paul directed them not only in Corinth, but also Galatia, to do this on the first day of the week. And of course, in Revelation, John is gathered together here in, and uh, is given a prophecy of the explanation, if you will, of the end times of Jesus Christ. And he says he was in, in, on the, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, Revelation 1.10. It is a new day. It is the first day of the week. This is a transition time, but ultimately the church then will begin to worship on this day 
because of the resurrection. And as Rodney so pointed, clearly pointed out, that was a thought every Lord's Day, that is, it, we gather together because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just this particular Easter as we're celebrating today. In any case, second notice here in our text, it does mention something about Mary Magdalene, and I just want to mention uh, briefly a little bit about her. Luke provides some background on her in Luke chapter 8. Some people uh, misunderstand and associate her with this immoral woman of chapter 7 in Luke. They're not one and the same. Uh, Mary, Mary was a sinner, of course, but, but not a prostitute. John notes here in our text, though, that she comes to this tomb and she does what? She sees, and she sees this empty tomb. Now, if you read the other Gospels, and that's where it's helpful, not all of the Gospels include every exact detail of what's going on. And the way we would understand this, the scene better is to look at all of the Gospels together, okay? And from that, we can get a better idea. John assumes by, the, by this time that you might know something about the other Gospels, hopefully have read them. Uh, Mary Magdalene wasn't by herself, is my point. She was uh, with another of other, uh, a group of women. Some of them are identified, but not all of them are identified. I imagine it was quite a large group of women who came. But note, she was first to come there. In fact, she was the first one that is recorded that there is an empty tomb. This would have been uh, critical in this particular time because women were not normally associated with any kind of reputable uh, testimony under Jewish law at this time. And yet, this is a record of what actually happened. She came, she saw, and uh, she um, was not somebody worthy of recognition to put in here, but John does, and the other gospel writers do. You know why? Because that's what actually happened. This is a historical account. They're not rewriting something different. But notice in verse 2 in John chapter 20, when she sees this empty tomb, she sees the stone that's no longer sealing the tomb, that she runs and goes to the disciples, particularly Simon Peter and the other disciple who is John. He describes himself, as I mentioned, the one that Jesus loved. And notice what she says in verse 2. She says, well, they've taken and the Lord, and we don't know where they have laid him. The, the we there helps you understand, too. She's in a group of other women, but she runs back to them, and, and again, probably explaining why she was there first and then why she was dispatched to go. She's probably younger and more athletic and able to make the journey quicker to go tell the disciples what they have seen. She was dispatched to go uh, indeed to do that. She told them what she saw, that's all. The stone that had covered the tomb was, was gone and the tomb was empty. Now notice in her text she incorrectly assumes that, well, somebody must have taken the body and put it somewhere else is her idea. Her conclusion is probably the testimony of that group. They're there, they're a bit bewildered, and remember, we're 2020, we're after the fact. We know what happened, but they didn't. 
they're arriving and they're expecting to put more spices on the body and because it was in a hurry when they had to put him in there uh, to beat the Sabbath rest. In any case, so she's going there and she assumes that someone had taken this body, but she assumed wrong. They knew that Jesus was actually dead. He was beat to, to a bloody pulp. He was stabbed in the side by professional executioners. This testimony here rules out any kind of a natural resuscitation, if you will, by some. She was right to say that this tomb is empty, what she saw, but she was wrong in how she assumed uh, that it, it became empty. Well, she goes, and she goes, verse 3, notice here, to, to Peter and the other disciple, who is John. And so they go to the tomb, and notice they're running also. And here you have this phraseology, the disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And, you know, your first glance, you might think, well, he's kind of telling what a great runner he is. He's more athletic. No, he's just recounting what happened. So as you're reading this historical record, you'll know, well, why was John there and Peter wasn't? Because Mary went to both of them and they both started out together. Well, Peter is older and he's a little out of breath. John's younger and excited and carried along. And so he runs to, to there and looks into the tomb as well. He, like Mary, was fitter and younger and was able to outrun. They're not bragging. They're just describing the situation and why they got there first. And notice, somewhat like Mary, he, he notices what's going on and he peers even a little closer. He sees these linen cloths with no body. Mary and the other women recognize there's no body. It's an empty tomb. He sees this as empty tomb, but he also notices there's some cl clothes, the grave clothes there, but he doesn't go in. He doesn't expect it any further. He's hanging around. Perhaps he is respectful of Peter. He's going to wait for Peter to show up. He doesn't want to disturb anything and allow Peter to have an undisturbed glimpse. Notice here, Mary saw the stone away. That's what's noticed. Other things are probably noticed, but that's what's emphasized. And then John, the linen clothes in verse 3. As I mentioned before, this word to see is just a general word for see in Greek, blepo. It just means to make an observation, to be aware of some, some of the facts. They weren't sure what was the reason behind these facts, but they saw one thing absolute, and that is, there's no body. Jesus is gone. The stone, indeed, that was used to seal the entrance, that was guarded by the Roman guard, it's gone, the guards are gone, the tomb is empty. There's no body. They didn't fully understand. Mary speculates. John doesn't seem to here in our text, but they know that Jesus is not there. This is the step in the right direction. All their questions that they might have about this is not answered at this point. There is a general knowledge which is true. 
He's not in the grave. And this leads us to the second Saul, if you will. Peter comes and he saw linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, verse 7. Look at verse 6 and 7. Peter comes. John's hanging out on the outside looking in. Peter comes and he goes into the tomb. And he looks a little closer and he sees these items. He investigates. Lying there is an, in an undisturbed fashion are these grave clothes. And he sees this face cloth distinctively wrapped up and set aside in a different spot. Now, here it's helpful to understand ancient burial practices that occurred at the first century in, under the Jewish practices. And you don't have to look very far. If you go to the previous chapter, chapter 19, it explains how these grave clothes came about. Verse 38 of chapter 19 Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned there. He was a disciple of Christ. He was a wealthy man. He was a follower of Christ. But he did so, it says, secretly because he was in fear of the Jews. Why? Because he would lose his life as well. He would lose his, his wealth and so forth. But he did follow Christ, but he did so secretly, at least up until now. He asked Pilate, note here, that, that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he took the body. And this other guy comes along, Nicodemus, you remember him, verse 39, is from chapter 3. Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night and asked him some questions. He recognized that no one could do the kinds of things that Jesus had done unless God was with him. He showed a first step of faith, if you will. And I think now here's the explanation. He's partnering up with Joseph of Arimathea to come and to anoint the body, demonstrating again, perhaps, I, I would think, that he indeed did put his faith in Jesus Christ. In any case, both of them, Joseph and Nicodemus, and probably some people helping them, came together bringing a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and note the weight here. 75 pounds of weight. That's a lot. You ever pick up 75 pounds? <laughs> it's a lot of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, which is the berry and the with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place there he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb, which no one had been laid. So they put him there. So here, the picture is this. They're wrapping Jesus up tightly in these linen cloths. They didn't embalm the body. They would instead infuse between these cloths spices, a lot of them. And in their case, they weighed it out at 75 pounds. The women were coming to put more on him. This is an act to help, obviously, reduce the odor of decay, but also one of great devotion. If you remember in Matthew 26, an ointment was put on Jesus, and Jesus said prophetically, this is done for my burial. 75 pounds of weight in this linen cloth wrapped around him 
You look in there and you would expect them to be gone if the body was gone. If you want to turn there, you can. Remember back in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. When he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Do you remember the condition that Lazarus was in? Verse 44 of chapter 11. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I mean, they were dumbfounded to see Lazarus, who they knew was dead, that they had wrapped him. And then all of a sudden he came out. But how did he come out of the grave? Bound up. Bound up in all these cloths and including this face cloth. They would have put a separate cloth over the face. He tells them to unbind him. Lazarus was restored to natural life, if you will. Remember Rodney reading about the natural and the spiritual in 1 Corinthians 15? The resurrection body here, note this, is different. It has a correspondence, and Paul uses the illustration in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 15, should I say, as a, a kernel of wheat, if you will. A, think of a seed that goes in the ground, and then it grows and comes up and produces what? More seed. There is a correspondence to it, but it's different, right? The resurrection body is different than the natural body that is put in the ground. Lazarus was raised to natural life. He would die again, waiting the final glorification and resurrection of his body, but not Jesus. Here it is unique as these uh, observation is made clear. This face cloth is folded and put aside. This invalidates any of the earlier ideas where the guards were bribed to say that somebody stole his body. If you stole his body, how are you going to get him unwrapped <laughs> with 75 pounds of spices all over him? And what fool would take the cloth of his face and then neatly fold it up and set it aside to a different spot? I mean, you would unwrap a naked body and do what with it? Dead, decaying, and do what with it? And if you put it somewhere, wouldn't you say, oh, well, there it is? This testimony is unique. No, no thief would remove a body without disturbing these clothes, grave clothes. They're there, the weight of the spices on them. I can imagine they're pressed down a little bit, but as though something completely came out, and yet with enough control to fold up the face cloth and set it aside. That's what Peter saw. He's investigating. He's looking at these facts a little bit closer and observing and theorizing, if you will, doing a careful analysis, and there's no explanation that would fit the facts of what he has discovered, of his evidence, other than a resurrection of a body in a glorified state. That's the only way it can happen. And later on, we'll read, too, um, here where Jesus appears to the disciples again in the upper room, and he has no problem in just materializing 
we think of it as going through a door, the ability to both live in the natural world and the supernatural world, and it is what uh, that is describes this state of the body in a glorified sense. He gets a conviction there as Peter thinks through and identifies these objects that he understands in a general sense, yeah, the body's gone, but then carefully looking at all of the facts and investigating everything, it is true. The only way that this could occur is that Christ truly rose from the dead. In verse 8, we'll see the third Saul. And that's where John now comes in behind Peter, perhaps observing all the things that Peter was pointing out. And it goes to a further step. Verse 8, this disciple who had incidentally reached the tomb first, he went in, saw, and notice here, and I've emphasized this before, he believed. The context really helps us here with the meaning of this scene, doesn't it? The first time John looked, it was kind of a general look. Yeah, he agreed. The tomb's empty. He saw some grave clothes. But he didn't take the careful analysis like Peter did. It wasn't, this is not a criticism. It's just an observation of what happened. But now John follows Peter into this tomb Going in by implication, we can say that he shared in this analysis observed by Peter that this is the only explanation of what's going on. It is that Christ truly rose bodily from the dead. John and Peter truly believe. They respond in faith. We could go on and on about the various facts of, of what we can find here and with among the other gospel writers and demonstrate a great, careful, evidential argument that Christ has risen from the dead. But the only way you're going to see this last is through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could. I, I wish I could convince you by the testimony of these witnesses. This historical account that occurs here. But I can't. You see, it's through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that the glory of Jesus Christ is ultimately displayed in the sense that you know it's true for you. And that's the hurdle I can't overcome. But I can use a source that the Holy Spirit will use to do that in your very life. And some of you may very well wake up right now and see the tomb as John and Peter ultimately see and believe. Notice verse 9 in our text. What the problem was, ultimately, they didn't understand the Scripture. That's this right here. That's why we read it. That's why we sing it. That's why we explain it. And it is through this simple proclamation of this truth that the Holy Spirit, whom Christ sent, 
will illuminate and enable your mind to see and savor the tomb empty in a, in a totally different way than I can characterize or explain. We've got a minute or two. Turn to Second Peter. Here's this guy, Peter, who went in and did this careful analysis. You know who Peter was. He was the disciple that was the spokesman for the rest. He um, was truly an insider and a leader of others. Here he led so much that John, who we esteem, he deferred to Peter and allowed him to go in first and followed him in a respectful way. Peter describes some of his experiences with Jesus Christ in his letter here, 2 Peter chapter 1, and look down to verse 16. He says, well, you didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay? This is the testimony of an insider, and what Peter is telling you is we didn't follow myths. Well, you know you didn't follow myths because here was a coward prior to the resurrection. Afterwards, he becomes greatly a courageous man preaching boldly the gospel, read through the book of Acts, ultimately martyred for his faith, all of them cowards, all of them turning courageous, all of them sacrificing their life to preach Christ. You don't sacrifice your life for what you know is a lie. They weren't following a myth. They're following the truth. And then he explains some of the majestic glory that he saw in Jesus Christ. In fact, it was Peter who was there at the tra what we call the transfiguration of Christ, where they said, you know, Christ's glory is veiled in his flesh. And they said, well, show us some of your glory. And Christ does put some of it on display and Peter describes that in verse 17 of 2 Peter 1. He says, we received honor and glory from when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine that? Here is an eyewitness who actually heard the very voice of God. Now, there's people running around today that say, oh, God told me this, that, or let me tell you, they didn't hear anything. Peter did. And so what does Peter say about his witness, which God, the Father speaks to glorify the Son, of which the Holy Spirit does to glorify the Son, we, verse 18, ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. So what does he say about his eyewitness and all of his facts that he found out? He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What is better than that? I think the best thing would be for God right now to speak and say, hey, this is true. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be a better way to do it? Not according to Peter. He says we have it better. It's fully confirmed. 
That is, it's authenticated. You don't have to hear me tell you about somebody else or somebody else recollect what they heard. We have something greater. And in fact, you will do very well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of what? Scripture. Comes from anyone's own interpretation, for it wasn't, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. It is this Holy Spirit that Jesus promised in chapter 16, that indeed would do that. The most reliable witness to the resurrection are not the facts that you're going to see with your eye. It's the very scripture that you will see through the power of the enabling, illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. These scriptures have been given by the Holy Spirit. It is an objective reality that is sitting before you right now. You can believe this because this record declares it to be true. And this record has been given to us by the spirit of truth. This is true belief. Yeah, you need to know the general idea about the facts of Christianity, about Christ. You need to know specifically that these indeed are, facts are true, but there has to be a personal trust and reliance on them tomb's empty. What do you see? Back to our text, what did they see? They believed. Notice verse 10. They went back to their homes. Put yourself there in that empty tomb, seeing what they saw. Stone rolled away. Clothes, grave clothes there. Closer inspection. All that spice there. Nothing's messed up on the floor. Face cloth folded aside, and they walk out. And then they go home. There's a certain satisfaction and peace and understanding. There's no panic. They're not running around. They're not looking for a body. They're not bewildered anymore. They believe. And there's a great assurance then that settles over them and enables them just to go back home in peace, knowing that Jesus had previously told them a couple nights before, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. How about you? What do you believe? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant to us the sight to truly see and believe. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, this is where we give you a moment not to respond to me, but to respond to Christ and the Holy Spirit. Maybe it, it might be praise to him, confession, whatever.
respond directly. I'll give you a few moments now to think and to respond directly. If you need to talk to one of the elders, we'll be available after the service. That's uh, for sure. Um, any of us can help. But take a moment privately between you and the Lord. Father, I pray through the power of your spirit that you indeed give us the ability to understand the scripture that Christ indeed must rise from the dead. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. King. Father, we're indeed thankful for the precious words of your prophet Isaiah, where he tells us to seek ye first the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. <clears throat> Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. <clears throat> so shall my words that go forth out of your mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.